Cops threatened someone with a charge for lying about kangaroos. Cyclist injuries are massively underreported by Toronto police. Police in Burnaby organized a huge secret DNA sweep at a Kurdish cultural event. Nauru severs diplomatic ties with Taiwan and an update from the war in Gaza against its cultural institutions. Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 16th. I'm Nora. Here are your headlines. Sometimes news doesn't matter, but sometimes even news that doesn't matter tells us something, like how quick the police are to turn to charges to force people in line. A story from Ashley Hoshka from CTV News reports that while the hunt was on for a kangaroo that was on the lam, there were two reports made that the animal was seen. This is the part of the news that doesn't matter. So to start, the kangaroo was spotted near Forest, Ontario, on the side of the road. Forest is in southwestern Ontario, in case you don't know that. The kangaroo was spotted by an Amazon driver who had seen it twice. She thought it was a deer, but then she, quote, realized that deer don't have tiny arms like that, ha ha, unquote. That is a top-shelf quote right there. Anyway, the OPP asked people to call in other kangaroo sightings before the kangaroo was found, and sure enough, someone called in another kangaroo sighting. This is where the news starts to matter. The second report turned out to be the same kangaroo as the first report. The police said it was a false report, and they're considering mischief charges against the person who reported the second kangaroo sighting. I just, you know, feel that maybe rather than criminalize people reporting things, if police want us all to narc on stuff, kangaroos included, they'll have to go through a number of fake reports. That's the nature of how reports go. And it's the nature of being a cop. You have to sift through what people say has happened and see what's true. But to consider responding to someone who's reported a fake kangaroo sighting with charges That's silly. But worse than that, it's easy to see how this could be used against people who the state already marginalizes. Like telling the guy to cut it out isn't a strong enough message. You got to tie the courts up also with something like this. Anyway, crank calls used to be legal. Next to Toronto, where a new study from York University has found that pedestrians and cyclists are being injured and not adequately counted or reported. City News' Nick Westall reports that the professors looked at data related to emergency room visits and found 30,000 cyclist visits over five years. 2,300 of those visits were admitted to hospital. What especially surprised the researchers is that 80% of those injuries were not from accidents that involved motor vehicles. As for pedestrians, they found 9,700 people had visited the ER after an accident involving a pedestrian. When they looked to see at how many of these incidences were reflected in data, they found that 54% of pedestrian injuries were captured by what police report. That's a lot that aren't reported. But when it comes to cyclists, that number drops significantly to just 7.9% are actually reported by police. The researchers didn't have data about what exactly happened to people and what landed them in hospital. 
I imagine that many of the cycling injuries that didn't include motor vehicles, as per the data, still probably at least kind of involved them, whether someone had to make a fast maneuver and they hit something or whatnot. I know that in my own life as a cyclist in Toronto, I was never actually hit by a car, but I did have two incidences that were caused by cars and that forced me to bail off my bike quickly and injure myself. Of course, there are also the innumerable obstacles that cyclists face all the time. Potholes that you can't see, streetcar tracks, garbage bins or rocks or sticks or other debris in the bike lane, whatever. The study authors argue that the safest option for cyclists is for them to have a dedicated lane where they aren't dodging cars or pedestrians. In 2022, 29 pedestrians died on the streets of Toronto, up from 26 the year previous. 10 people died who were in a motor vehicle at the time of their death. Five motorcyclists were killed and one cyclist was killed. Next to British Columbia, where the Canadian press's Brianna Charlebois is reporting on a gross invasion of personal privacy to try and obtain DNA for a murder investigation. In 2018, police disguised themselves as tea marketers and collected DNA from some 150 members of the Kurdish community. They set up at a Kurdish New Year party in Burnaby, handed out free tea in numbered cups, pretending to be marketers, and then swabbed the cups to see if they could identify the suspect they had's brother. The murder they were trying to solve was of a 13-year-old girl whose identity is protected by a publication ban. They managed to match DNA to the killer, Ibrahim Ali, who has since been convicted of first-degree murder, by grabbing a cigarette butt that he tossed away. But police had been monitoring him and engaging in these massive DNA sweeps to try and land the DNA match. The article doesn't make it clear whether or not any of the DNA that was gathered at the party had anything to do with the conviction, as eventually they did get DNA directly from Ali himself. Megan McDermott from the BC Civil Liberties Association said this, quote, it's really disappointing and disturbing that they came up with a creative way that they probably are very proud of to violate the rights of so many people, unquote. Cops didn't reply to an interview request and, quote, it's not clear if a warrant was sought or obtained, unquote, to do this massive DNA sweep. The article also quotes David Eby, who manages to say nothing of substance at all, that the murder was shocking and needed to be solved, and that the girl who was killed, her rights were obviously violated by being murdered. But now that the guy's convicted, Eby quote-unquote struggles with news about the massive DNA sweep. The article does not mention what the police did with all those DNA samples, which is right now probably the only part of the story that poses a current and pressing concern. Next to news from CBC Calgary that looks at the more than 180,000 non-permanent residents who live in Alberta. It's a deep dive into immigration and has found that there are 180,000 people who live in Alberta who have non-permanent resident status. The article also highlights right underneath the headline that one immigration lawyer calls this a deluge and a flood. Deluge is also used as a headline further down the article. Written by Julie Aldis, Carla Turner, and Boshika Gupta, the word deluge is attributed to immigration lawyer Raj Sharma. He says that he isn't worried about permanent residents. Those folks, quote, ultimately do well, unquote. But he is very concerned about the non-permanent residents that come to Canada and Alberta specifically, hoping to find a path to citizenship through the workforce. Because it's hard to get permanent resident status in Canada, many people do look for temporary work to get Canadian experience and then apply to stay. 
This approach is far from a guarantee. In fact, many people find themselves shut out of permanent residence status after having spent many years in Canada working. Sharma says that he's worried that people are treated like a Kleenex. Canada steals their youth, and after they've worked something like 18 hours per day, they're forced to leave. What the article doesn't mention is where temporary foreign workers fit into this picture, if they're totally left out of the story or if they're included in the largest group, the ones who are here on temporary work visas. By not talking about this program specifically, readers are missing an important part of the story, that Canada's program has been called a modern day slavery program and it's specifically designed to not allow people to have a path to citizenship. So do the folks who come here on temporary work visas know that and hope anyway that something might work? Or is there another kind of visa that is clear, open and shut that you will not be able to stay in Canada once you come to work? The article features lots of people who are struggling with immigration status and what they think of the program and is just part one of a series. So maybe they'll deal specifically with the temporary foreign work program later on, or as I suspect, those folks are included in it. We need to be very clear about how these programs treat people so brutally, as the article does a good job. But going back to the point that I started with, that the word deluge and flood is used to talk about people. It's pretty gross, and I can see why Sharma was using those words. I don't know why CDC thought it was an editorially good idea to highlight them at the top of the article as well. Next to international news, and we'll start with Nauru. The small South Pacific nation has announced that they will sever diplomatic ties with Taiwan and instead open a relationship with China. In so doing, they will no longer, quote, have official relations or official exchanges with Taiwan. The government has said that this is, quote, in the best interests of Nauru, unquote. Taiwan's deputy foreign minister, Tian Chung Kuang, responded to the news by saying that they too would do the same, quote, to safeguard our national dignity, unquote, reports Al Jazeera. Nauru is the first country to break diplomatic ties with Taiwan since their elections this past weekend. William Lai Chongte from the Democratic Progressive Party won the election. Even though that party was already in power, Lai has been called a quote-unquote troublemaker by China. Taiwan has only 12 diplomatic allies. Al Jazeera cites a few, Guatemala, Paraguay, Palau, the Marshall Islands, and Eswatini. And finally, while the death toll inches higher in Gaza and is almost at 25,000, Al Jazeera has a feature that outlines which of Gaza's cultural landmarks have been demolished by Israel since October 7th. Hundreds of sites of historical importance have been devastated. One was the Great Omari Mosque, which Israel destroyed on December 8th. An ancient manuscript collection had been kept there, and no one knows what state the manuscripts are in following the strike. The Othman bin Kashkar Mosque was struck too. That mosque dates back to the year 1220. The Byzantine Church of Jabalia, which goes back to the year 444, was destroyed. The Reshad el-Shawa Cultural Center was destroyed. The Syed al-Hashim Mosque, which dates back to the 12th century, was damaged. The St. Hilarion Monastery was damaged, which goes back to the year 340. The Church of Porphyrius from the year 425 was damaged. Hammam al-Samara, which was likely built by Jews who were Samaritans and lived in the ancient Jewish quarter, was destroyed. The Tel el-Ajul fortified city, which goes back to the year 1800 BCE, was damaged. And so too was the Anthodon Harbor, which dates back to 800 BCE. And two museums have been leveled as well. The Al-Kahara Museum in Khan Yunis was demolished, and it was full of artifacts from the Canaanite era. 
There's also been severe damage to a Roman-era necropolis that was discovered just last year. At least 134 tombs that go back to 200 BCE are believed to be there, and work to excavate and examine that site had just started. Anyway, it's impossible to argue that Israel, with all its targeted this and precision weapons that, needed to destroy these landmarks to get rid of Hamas. No serious adults in the world can honestly argue that. What a loss for humanity's collective culture and history and what we know of where we came from. Those are your headlines from Tuesday, January 16th. I'm Nora. Today is Tuesday at Sandy and Nora Day. Today you're going to get second part of last week's episode, question and answer period from the OPSU Young Workers Conference. It's really great. We talk about lots of things, especially like organizing and how to keep yourself safe from reprisals and from police when you're doing radical actions. You are listening to this podcast at sandynora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and anywhere you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful Tuesday and I'll talk to you tomorrow.